Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen here with you as always on this rainy Thursday, Brendan. That was it? I that's thought it. there was going to be some more after that rainy Thursday. The, that's the end of the updates. We got a, a view, beautiful view of the ballpark out this window and, and of the construction on the left field wall, which is well underway. We are hopefully a couple weeks away from the from the start of spring training, though that is hopefully. looking less likely as we go along. But fear not. We will keep you entertained whether there will be baseball on time or not in the month of February. And uh, today, Brendan, we're going to spend our time talking about uh, the infield, the Orioles infield plans for 2022. That is the year that it is. What they could do to supplement that infield once the lockout ends. And if they don't, what they would go into the season as. But first, Brendan, some breaking news that came out yesterday, which is Cedric Mullins revealing that he had Crohn's disease diagnosed in November of 2020 after he was dealing for it for the majority of the 2020 season and really helps put everything into perspective after last week's conversation that we had on the podcast about Cedric Mullins and his transformation in 2021, how he went from a below-average hitter to an all-star starter in center field. And we talked about the adjustments he made at the plate, the adjustments he made mentally, the fact that he was dealing with a pretty serious debilitating disease at the same time and the fact that he was able to get it diagnosed and treated before his breakout season lends some credence to the transformation that he had. It absolutely does. I don't think it dismisses everything that we were talking about in terms of the adjustments no. he made, obviously switching away from switch hitting, but we'd also be remiss if we didn't mention it because it can certainly contribute to the fact that he took a giant leap forward in 2021. And that might have been, at least in some part, due to the fact that he was now being treated for this disease that he had the symptoms of, but was not yet diagnosed with. So he said he started dealing with those symptoms in 2020, like you mentioned. And obviously, without having the diagnosis, he wasn't able to get it treated. So it was probably doing a lot more harm at that point until the diagnosis came. So certainly makes last season, even with knowing that he has it and treating it in the way that it needs to be treated, still makes last season even more impressive knowing what he was dealing with. And he talked about in the video where he revealed it, the fact that he was feeling a lot of symptoms at the time when Trey Mancini was diagnosed with colon cancer. And Trey was obviously very vocal once his diagnosis was revealed about the need for people to get checked. Uh, a lot of men, especially to get checked young men, because his disease in stage three colon cancer was a disease that is becoming increasingly common in young men, um, concerningly so. And I think the fact that he was having, Mullins was having these symptoms around that time made it much more concerning because it forces you to take a step back, look at what you're dealing with and say, am I, is this a symptom of a larger issue? So the fact that he was still having symptoms 
thank God it wasn't colon cancer and it was much more manageable in Crohn's disease, but it's still maybe the fact that Mancini was able to get a diagnosis and get uh, put a name to what he was dealing with allowed Mullins, uh, you know, maybe spurred Mullins to be a little bit more proactive in looking after his own health and realizing that a little problem can be symptomatic of something deeper under the, underneath the surface. Yeah, and that's kind of a problem that uh, Mullins mentioned it. It's almost a stigma yes. because as a man, especially as a professional athlete, there's kind of this idea that if you are having symptoms of something, you can just tough it out. You can work through it. You can ignore them because it's it's not that big of a deal and you just kind of need to be a tough guy and get through it. But to break that stigma and say, okay, there might be something wrong here. I need to go get something checked out. That's important. Yeah. Because we've talked about before the stigma surrounding mental health with professional athletes and physical health. It probably has more of a stigma around it than we thought because there's always this tough guy mentality. And I think that was in a really um, important message to share, to share from Mullins that, yes, you can be a tough athlete, but you also need to take care of yourself. And that's not something that makes you any less of a tough guy. You're just doing what's best for you. That's well said. There is the idea that you do need to play through injury, and especially in baseball where it's a grueling season, you need to be able to tough it out and get through the season. And I get that. I get that toughness and stick-to-itiveness, these are all important attributes, but when it is something that is directly affecting your health, um, it is something, it is hugely important, and I think it's good to see that an athlete is talking about, share is sharing his story here and talking about why it is still important that you go to the doctor, that you check um, what needs to be checked, and I think that that is, uh, that's a good message to have, and it's a shame that it had to happen that way, and that, you know, he had to like Mancini, kind of learn the hard way. Um, but that is, I'm glad that he's sharing his message with that. All right, shall we turn our attention to the infield? Yeah, let's do it. So essentially, there are myriad questions facing the Orioles infield at this point, and neither of us think the Orioles are by any means done with making upgrades to their overall roster, and in particular, the infield. And if you look back at the past couple years and how Mike Elias has operated during the offseason, He's taken the end of January, beginning of February as a time to reevaluate the market, look for inefficiencies in the market, look for guys who have slipped through the cracks, and make fringe roster adjustments. Guy signing Freddie Galvis to a $1.5 million deal, uh, signing Michael Franco. That was closer to opening day. But essentially, this is the time if we weren't in a lockout where Michael Elias would probably be adding somebody either to a major league or minor league deal. So neither of us think that this is going to be the roster, the infield roster on opening day. So let's talk first and foremost about where the Orioles can upgrade. We saw Rugnet Odor signed right before the lockout, primarily a second baseman. But both of us think that Odor is not the end and he's not the entire answer to upgrading the infield. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different routes that the Orioles could go. I think there's a case to be made that there probably isn't an everyday third baseman on the roster at this point, so maybe Mike Elias looks to third base. There are some intriguing options at shortstop like Jorge Mateo, but will Mike Elias again opt to look to free agency and try to get a shortstop that he could potentially flip at the deadline because shortstop's 
always seem to have at least some value at the trade deadline. Even Freddie Galvis last year, post-injury, was still able to be flipped. I think there's a bunch of different routes that the Orioles could go in free agency, but I think third base and shortstop are the two primary positions that we think they could look at. Yeah, so right now, the Orioles roster in terms of the infield is pretty thin. And there are some intriguing names, like you said. There are some promising guys amongst this group. But right now, it's Rylan Bannon, Kelvin Gutierrez, Jemai Jones, Jorge Mateo, Rugnet Odor, Ramon Urias, and Taron Vavra. That's seven guys, not including the two first basemen in Mancini and Mountcastle. Seven guys that, again, the promise is there. But how many regular big leaguers, proven big leaguers, can you count amongst that group? I think you can say Odor has proven that he can be a an everyday big leaguer at one of the infield spots. Other than that, nobody else has locked down a big league spot ever in their careers. Yeah. So it's a very young group. It is a talented group, but there are a ton of question marks there. And I mean, even Odor is at the point in his career where he needs to prove that he can still be an everyday player because he had a few good seasons in Texas where he looked really promising and looked like a good power-hitting second baseman, and then he fell off a little bit and was a, a contributor for the Yankees, but he was mostly off the bench and was really only playing because of injuries. Yeah. So even Rupnet Odor, as the most established of that group, really needs to prove something, and I think that's why he's here in Baltimore yeah. because he knows he can probably get an everyday spot and he wants to be somewhere where he can say, okay, I still have it. And, yeah. and maybe he maybe he goes somewhere else and is able to succeed. But he's got to be somewhere where he actually has a chance, and Baltimore gave him the best opportunity. Like we've seen in the past, you really only need to string together a few good months to make yourself tradable right. in baseball because injuries happen across the league, and guys who had no interest a few months ago from teams in free agency – suddenly garner a ton of interest from a competitor who is just looking for a stopgap-like player. So amongst that group of seven guys that I just mentioned, you have some third baseman, you have some second baseman, you have very few shortstop. And my question for you, first and foremost, is once the lockout ends and we start to see free agency 2.0, which is the bigger position of need? We I think you can safely say they're not going to target too many second basemen because they already got Odor as a primary second baseman. They have Jemai Jones. Rylan Bannon can play second. So between shortstop and third base, which is the more important, the bigger need for the Orioles in, to address in free agency? Well, to answer this question, there's a difference between what I think the Orioles should do and what I think the Orioles will do. Yeah. Because I'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk more in detail about Rufnet Odor. I think he should be the starting third baseman, even though the conventional wisdom is that he is going to be the second baseman in that conversation. So if it were me... I would start Rugnet Odor at third base and maybe look to shortstop in free agency. But I think a little bit more realistically, if you are just looking at the players that they have there right now and expecting Odor to play second base, I think third base is the bigger need. Because right now you have Calvin Gutierrez at third and Jorge Mateo at shortstop. And in my head, I'm weighing which one of those two do I think has a greater chance of being an everyday player this year, and I think it's Jorge Mateo. Because Mateo last year, 
showed some good flashes with the O's. He didn't play in that many games, just 32 before he was injured, but he hit 280 with a 748 OPS. And again, we talked about Mateo when he first signed. This is a former top prospect who still has a lot of upside. And if he's able to put together some of the tools that people thought he had coming up throughout the minor leagues, then Mateo can be an everyday shortstop if he puts things together. Puts things together. Kevin Gutierrez has never really had that upside and he was okay for the O's last year. He again showed some good flashes, but I don't think he has nearly the upside that Mateo has. So if I'm betting on one of those to be an everyday guy this year, I'm betting on Mateo. I disagree. Not because I don't believe in Mateo's upside. I think Mateo has still has that upside. He's only 26 years old. And like you said, a former top prospect and how is he going to reach his ceiling? By getting more at-bats. Right. And I think if you sign a shortstop, you risk not giving him enough at-bats to not realize his potential. The reason the Orioles took a chance on him when other teams, like the Padres, gave up on him is because the Padres were a team that thought they were in playoff contention and they didn't have the at-bats to give to Jorge Mateo. And when Mateo landed with the Orioles on a waiver claim... Teams around the league and GMs around the league were saying maybe he can flourish there because he will get the everyday at-bats. I do still want to see that regular playing time from Jorge Mateo. However, the Orioles have more depth in the system at third base, I think, than they have at shortstop. And I think Jorge Mateo, while he is intriguing... If he gets injured, I don't know who your everyday shortstop would be. Maybe Ramon Urias, who did not grade out well defensively as a shortstop last year. And we know how important to Michael Ice the shortstop position is. That's why he invested in in Jose Iglesias a couple years ago and Freddie Galvis last year. And you said it off the top of the pod, shortstops tend to have a bigger trade market value than third baseman because third baseman is more of a power-hitting position. It is the hot corner, but shortstop, you're covering more ground defensively, and oftentimes in the middle of the season, teams are looking for somebody who is versatile defensively, who is rangy defensively, because they need a late-game replacement at shortstop. They need somebody who can fill in at second and third, and I think that fits the bill of a shortstop more than it would a third baseman. I think if you're looking for purely deadline value, then shortstop is the way to go. I say third base because there are just so many chess pieces here and so many guys that can play different positions. The way that I kind of have them arranged in my head, at least, is that you have, I suppose in that situation, if I'm signing a third baseman, that means that Ramon Arias is playing a lot of shortstop and a lot of second base and not as much third base. I'm looking at it from more of a perspective of, Where do you need an everyday starter more? And I think that spot is third. But I think you can get away with a Calvin Gutierrez or Mona Rios combination at third. But like you said, I don't know if the Orioles want to sign a veteran shortstop who you're going to play every day because then where do you put Jorge Mateo? And if you put him at second, then where do you put Jemai Jones to get him at bats? So there are just so many moving pieces here that it's hard to imagine where the Orioles are going to add, even though we're pretty sure they are. Right. And I think that when we talked about, we did our free agency bracket earlier in the offseason, we talked about versatility being huge. And I think that's why we had Marwin Gonzalez winning the free agency bracket because he can play multiple positions in that infield. So 
regardless of who they sign, assuming they're going to sign one more infielder, I think versatility is the most important thing. And you can debate whether or not it's shortstop or third base needs to be their primary position. However, I think those are the two most important positions. I would lean shortstop. I get that you lean third base. But ideally, you have somebody who can play both those positions. Right. Um, all right. Next inquiry I have for the infield has to do with Ramon Urias. We saw some nice flashes from Urias this past year. He's still fairly young, turns 28 in June. He's 27 right now. Doesn't have the upside of a Jemai Jones, a Jorge Mateo, some of the former top prospects. But he looked pretty good at third base. What is Ramon Urias's role in 2022? And what is his long-term future with the Orioles? I think it's as a solid utility guy. I don't see Ramon Urias as a starter on this team. The way I look at it is in a few years from now, you are hoping that the Orioles are going to be a playoff team. If everything goes according to plan, some of the big prospects come up. The Orioles are hopefully going to make a playoff push on the backs of their top prospects like Adley Rutschman and then Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson and maybe Taron Vavra. I don't think Ramon Urias is going to be a starter on a successful Orioles team because I think a successful Orioles team means that these prospects came up and they were good enough to be starters. That means the rebuild works. So if that happens, we could see an infield of Ryan Mountcastle, Jordan Westberg, Gunnar Henderson, Kobe Mayo in some combination. So I don't know where Ramon Arias fits into that plan a few years from now, but that's not to say that that's not valuable. There have been valuable utility guys throughout the league. Marwin Gonzalez was a huge part of those Astros World Series teams. Kike Hernandez yeah. was a big part of both the Dodgers and Red Sox World Series runs. Chris Taylor, obviously a huge part of the Dodgers teams. So I don't think that means he's not valuable. It just means he's probably not going to be a starter. I know Chris Taylor is a bad think, example because he started a lot. But. Well, no, and all three of those guys started a lot, but where they were needed, right. they weren't penciled in. You know, they didn't weren't written in in Sharpie on opening day in a position. They played that position. They played a lot of games because that's what's needed, and I think that's a good point to make. Right. The only difference I would say with those three guys is they have the ability to play in the outfield which I don't think Ramon Arias does or has not been tried yet. Right. So, where, so that's what made Taylor, Gonzalez, Hernandez great utility players is not only could they play every infield position, you could stick them in center field in Fenway and they do a great yeah, job. Yeah, they could play seven positions. Right. And I think that's the difference here because I have concerns about Arias being a true utility guy because he's not quite as versatile as he might appear. The bulk of his games in 2021 did come at shortstop, but he was not great defensively at shortstop. He was not above average by any metric. StatCast had him in the second percentile and outs above average. It's not very good. He had negative defensive runs saved at shortstop. He was right around average at third base, at second base. So he can play those other positions, but unless you can play shortstop, I don't know if you're a true utility guy. I think Arias needs to be able to play short. Yeah. To stick at, around. At, a, at an above average level. Yes. And I think that's an, also an interesting way that you put it where you said, if the Orioles are going to be successful in the short term, it's going to be on the backs of guys like Westberg and Henderson. I think that's an interesting way to think about it. However, I think plans do change when you see new information that changes your calculus. 
for example, Cedric Mullins, was not planned to be... We didn't come into 2021 saying if the Orioles are going to be successful offensively, it's going to be with Cedric Mullins in center field. So, but he locked down that spot and he was excellent. So if Ramon Arias can show us something that he has not yet shown us, then I think that he can, he will always get at bats if he's performing well. The Orioles aren't in a position yet where they can use guys as trade bait, young guys as trade bait because they're playing well. If he... If Urias shows he can be an everyday big leaguer at third base or shortstop or wherever, I think the Orioles will continue to give him an opportunity at that spot. But he needs to get there because he was pretty good this past year, wore close to two. I need to see more at-bats from him, and he needs to be solid defensively and be able to lock down multiple spots. He needs to get better. He can't be what he is now because... I don't think that player is productive enough at the plate to be a utility guy on a good team. Yeah, if Ramon Rios continues to play well enough to earn his spot in the everyday lineup, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. Just like Cedric Mullins locking down a spot in center field and you've just drafted a bunch of outfield prospects, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. You will figure out where to play them. But I think if Ramon Rios continues to play at the level that he has been for the last year plus... While that is good quality baseball, that is a solid bench piece, it's not good enough to start you when Jordan Westberg comes up or when Gunnar Henderson comes up. The Orioles aren't going to do that because in order to be successful, you're going to need to get Westberg at bats. You're going to need to get some of these top infield prospects at bats, and Ramon Rios just doesn't have that upside. Yeah. So if he continues to play the way he has... I think he has a spot. It's just not as a starter. I think the good thing is when you look at where they were last year, the guy that I would compare him to is Rio Ruiz, and I think he's better than Rio Ruiz. Yes. Rio Ruiz came into that season. We knew he was a stopgap. They were trying him out at second base because they wanted to see if he had that position in his arsenal, and he was good defensively, but he was never good enough. He never had an offensive season like the one that Urias just had. Not that Urias was blowing anybody's doors off, but he was solid offensively, and Rio Ruiz was not at any point in his Orioles career, and that's why they had to cut bait with him early. I think the good thing is the Orioles appear to have found a slightly better option in Ramon Urias. Definitely. Next question for you, Brendan. Ryland Bannon. And what a question he is. Whew. Coming off a very down year at the plate offensively at AAA Norfolk, there were hopes that this guy that this guy could be the guy that they thought they were getting as part of the Manny Machado trade from the Dodgers. He really hit a snag in Norfolk, and that put a, similar to Eusniel Diaz, it slowed down his progression quite a lot. What does he need to do in 2022 at AAA Norfolk to earn a call-up to the big leagues? This is probably going to be my simplest answer of any of the questions you ask me. He's got to not hit 177. Like, he just wasn't good at AAA last year, and he needs to be good. I mean, Rylan Bannon really struggled last year. In 2019, he was good in AAA. He hit 317. He had an 893 OPS in 20 games. If he gets back to that form, then the Orioles will probably have a place for him somewhere 
in the majors because second base is not a spot that has been locked down by Jemai Jones by any means. And it, it's still up in the air. Ryland Bannon at one point we thought was good enough to be a second base, third base hybrid as early as last year in the major leagues. But he can't hit 177. Yeah. You just can't call him up when he's struggling that much in AAA. Yeah. So if he gets anywhere close to what he was like in 2019, then I think the Orioles call him up and you're not really worried about the service time anymore because he's not a top 30 prospect right. anymore. You're just hoping for something out of Ryan, Ryland Bannon. But yeah. quite simply, he's just got to hit better. And to me, it's not about power because we saw that power in September when he went on that incredible hot streak. He had the best two weeks of maybe any prospect in the Orioles system yeah. in September, and there were calls to call him up. But then you looked at his batting average, and he said, that's not going to fly. And to me, he's a smaller guy, and he is pretty bulked up, and I get he's worked a lot on his power, and that's awesome. The power has to be a secondary skill. The Orioles value bat-to-ball skills primarily, and especially if you're going to be a second baseman, third baseman, the power is nice to have. I get that. But Ryland Banlin's never going to hit 30 home runs in the big leagues. Almost definitely not. So, to me, he has to have a higher batting average, and he has to be a more consistent hitter. It's not about showing flashes of power. If you even saw that from Yusniel Diaz, if, if Yusniel Diaz had a hot stretch power-wise, but his batting average was low, I could stomach that a little bit more and say, all right, call him up a little bit early because he's going to, over the course of his big league career, need power to be a better skill probably than his bat-to-ball skills, or they're going to be comparable. I think contact is a more important skill for Bannon to showcase, and that's why I think he just needs to get more, be more consistent. How are you going to seek more consistency? By seeing more games from him. So it might be a while before we see him get, get called up. To me, if he has a if he hits eight homers in the month of April, or I guess they start in yeah in April and May, and he is still hitting around two hundred, that's not going to be good enough for me. He needs to have a higher batting average, higher on base percentage. No, it, it, that's the point. I don't care if you're hitting thirty home runs. Yeah, if you're hitting a buck seventy five. Yeah, that's not going to cut it. That's not going. That's not going to be good enough. Yeah. Um. All right. Next question also has to do with Bannon because I mentioned second base third base as his two primary positions assuming he does get called up to the big league level this year where will Ryland Bannon play the bulk of his game second or third I think it's going to be third I think second base is just a little bit more crowded especially if the plan is to put Rugnet Odor there you've got Odor Jemai Jones Ramon Arias at that spot I don't see where Ryland Bannon fits into that equation I don't know if he fits into the third base equation, quite honestly, either, because if you've got Kelvin Gutierrez and Ramon Arias there, I suppose you would still try to get Ryland Bannon playing time there, but I think he has better odds at doing that than he does at second base, because one of them, he has Jemai Jones ahead of him, and one of him, he does not. And the Orioles tend to agree, because he played 231 games at third base and just 120 over the course of his minor league career at second. So he has played you know, close 100 more games over his minor league career at third than at second. And the depth chart says, you know, we'll assign him a position if he does get called up. Yeah, I think he could play above uh, Kelvin Gutierrez. I don't know if he would get playing time above Jemai Jones. Problem is he's only a year younger than Kelvin Gutierrez and Kelvin Gutierrez is already in the big leagues and has been yeah. for a couple years yeah. he, when, he, when he was with the Kansas City Royals. So not like he was great, but... He is a step ahead of Ryland Bannon, and he runs the risk of having all these guys beat him out and jump him. He's already had guys jump him in the 
prospectless, but he's very much runs the risk of having Gunnar Henderson or Jordan Westberg debut before he does. And at that point, that is taking a step back development wise, and that's very concerning. I mean, he already has yes. taken us. He's behind. And the, there, there's no other way to put it. He uh, is behind. I will say the hope is perhaps from the Orioles side that a new Buck Britton led coaching staff in Norfolk might spark some kind of, you know, development from him. He does need to stay a little bit more healthy than he was last year, but the hope is that he, he starts to turn things around. But at this point, I don't think the Orioles feel much investment in him, especially because Michael Elias was not part of the front office that traded for him, that acquired him. So they would love to see him succeed, but it is more important that Connor Henderson and Jordan Westberg succeed than it is Bannon. Yeah, you'll take anything from Ryland Bannon at this point. Exactly. All right, Jemai Jones. You mentioned the second baseman who's probably going to get, who is already beaten even though he's younger. He's, he's beaten Ryland Bannon to the big leagues. Is Jemai Jones a second baseman on this team? And I know that the Orioles have said that he is, they believe that he can play that position. They've stuck him there when he was a AAA Norfolk. When he came up to the big leagues, every one of his games came at second base. But I also look back at when Ryan Mountcastle was viewed as a left fielder. They gave him a ton of games in left field in 2019 in AAA Norfolk, the year he won the International League MVP. They said all the right things. They believed he could play left field. They saw some signs of improvement from him came up he made his debut in 2020 as a left fielder the vast majority of his games came at it came in left field he was tolerable defensively in left field he came into 2021 as your opening day left fielder and then things fell apart in the first first month of the season and he looked very lost defensively in left field and they moved him to first base full-time and they abandoned that experiment as quickly as they started it is Jemai Jones going to follow a similar path as Ryan Mountcastle? I don't think he will. I don't think the Ryan Mountcastle comparison is a bad one in terms of the defensive ability because Ryan Mountcastle was not very good in left field. And Jemai Jones is a little bit better at second than Mountcastle was in left. But Jemai Jones still not very good last year at second base. The massive difference, though is that Ryan Mountcastle was so good offensively that the Orioles said, we don't really care if you can't play left field. It would be awesome if you could. But if not, we'll move you to first base. You will probably be a solid defender there. And no matter what, we don't care if we have to DH Ryan Mountcastle. He's going to be in our lineup because he is a fantastic hitter. Jemai Jones did not hit very well last year. So my question with Jemai Jones is that if he's not a second baseman, then what is he? Well, because are you playing are you playing him in the outfield over Cedric Mullins, over Austin Hayes, Anthony Santander, Ryan McKenna, Kyle Robert Stowers. Newstrom, Kyle Stowers? Are you playing him in the outfield over any of those guys? I don't think you are. Well, the difference though, I will say, is Mountcastle, because he's a first baseman corner outfielder, like his bat has to be good and it was. Whereas Jemai Jones because he's more athletic, he's faster on the base paths. It's not like he has to go out and hit a million home runs for him to be a productive player. But he does have to be a good defender. He can't just be vers he can't just be quote unquote versatile. And, you know, you can you can play him at second base, you can play him. He has to be above average defensively at at least one of those positions. I think that there's a possibility 
a spot could open up for him in the outfield, given injuries. You never know what could happen. But I agree. I think that he has to be more productive, regardless of which position he plays. You could stick him wherever. He, if he's not hitting above 240 and his OPS is below 700, he can't be an everyday big leaguer, period. So that is the most important thing for him. And I'm curious to see as well, because I think part of Mountcastle's development last year and his uptick, remember he had one of the worst starts offensively for this team, and people were saying maybe he should be demoted to AAA Norfolk because of how much he was struggling at the plate. They moved him off left field. That might have helped him. The fact that he was taken off of a difficult defensive position for him and put at first base, which was much more natural for him, I think that that might have helped him at the plate, took something off of his mind, and allowed him to relax at the plate. Are the Orioles going to do that with Jemai Jones? If he's struggling offensively and defensively at second base, are they going to say, you know what, we're going to make you a utility outfielder. You can play left, center, right. You're going to be Ryan McKenna type, but we want to take the load off your mind and make it a little bit easier for you to focus. I think when we talk about future value and future roles, I think Jemai Jones' future value hinges on him being able to play second base. Because I don't think, in terms of the Orioles' outfield, he's good enough to stick around as even the fourth outfielder. Because Colton Kowser is coming. Kyle Stowers is coming. Ryan McKenna is already here. And then you've got Cedric Mullins and Austin Hayes who look like they're going to lock down spots for a while. So where does Jemai Jones fit into that equation in the outfield? Injuries. It, he fills in somewhere. So if Jemai Jones isn't able to play second base, I don't know if he sticks around in the Orioles outfield. I think his best bet is hopefully he plays well enough to be an everyday second baseman kind of player. But I think realistically looking down the line, maybe he turns into a bench piece that you can play at second or you can play in the outfield. And he is still young. I think this is going to be his age 24 season. Age 24. Yeah, last season was his age 23 season. So yeah. by no means are we giving up on Jemai Jones. We just need to see improvement offensively and improvement defensively. And he's a good enough athlete to get it done. The raw talent's there. It just needs to show up. And the same thing with the Cedric Mullins conversation. It's if he does come out very strong offensively in 2022, he can change the equation but he has a little bit of an uphill battle. You know, he can change the Orioles' calculus here and say, you know what? His defense at second base, it's not all that bad. He's hitting 320. You know, right. it, they, he can change their minds. Uh, if he's hitting well, the Orioles will find a spot for him, but he has to be more productive at the plate than he was uh, in 2021. All right, another guy who has to be better. Will he get the opportunity to show that he can improve? Richie Martin. Right before the lockout, like very, it was like a day before the lockout began, he was outrighted to AAA Norfolk. He got some time up in Baltimore in 2021. It was sparing. He did not look particularly good. He struggled with injuries. He got a lot of several games in AAA Norfolk where he wasn't exactly, you know, dominating at that level. His Calling card is going to be his defense. I don't know if Richie Martin's defense is enough to get him back up to Baltimore for an extended amount of time. And I think the Orioles showed their hand and showed what they really thought about Richie Martin 
by outriding him right before the lockout started. I think his defense is good enough that if the Orioles do not sign a shortstop in free agency, he could potentially play 10 to 15 games as Jorge Mateo's backup. 10 to 15 games of 162? Of 162. So I, I don't yeah. see any more than that. because I, I don't see him breaking camp. Unless he has an incredible spring training, I tend to think Richie Martin is not going to break camp. No. I think maybe he comes back up to Baltimore if there are injuries. I think that's probably his role at this point, but you're certainly not going to play him over Jorge Mateo at shortstop. You're not going to play him over probably any of the other guys we've mentioned that can bounce around positions like Odor or Ramon Arias or even Kelvin Gutierrez. I don't think he's going to get playing time over any of those guys. So maybe if you have a massive hole at shortstop that you don't address in free agency, then Martin can be a solid defense first backup. But I don't see his role being anything more than that because the bat hasn't improved and it has certainly not improved enough to earn a spot permanently in the majors. And I feel bad because he has really been hit by unlucky random fluke injuries, yes. particularly with the wrist uh, he broke his wrist. I think he broke his wrist sliding back into first base at one point during summer camp in 2020. So he has gotten very unlucky. And as such, he has missed a lot of games. So maybe he has made these improvements. And and I believe Brandon Hyde was complimentary of the improvements that he saw in spring training from Richie Martin. But you just didn't see enough. And he just wasn't getting enough at-bats because of injury for him to change anybody's mind. I don't think he's done done with the Orioles unless he, I don't know exactly what his contract status is. He may be able to elect free agency once the lockout ends. I'm not 100% sure. But assuming he comes back to the Orioles and stays in the organization, I think there's a chance he comes up if somebody gets hurt, like you said. He can play second base. That works in his favor. He hasn't done in the big leagues, but he has in the minor leagues when he was with the Oakland A's. So I think that he has that in his arsenal, which is nice. But what did we see last year? Does anybody remember the 30-some games that we saw from Stevie Wilkerson last year? Stevie yeah. Wilkerson, at one point last year, you and I were talking on a podcast about why Stevie Wilkerson was getting called up before Jemai Jones was. And our explanation was they need to exhaust all options and make sure that they don't have anything in any one of these guys that has flown under the radar. It's sad to say but I think Richie Martin has joined the Stevie Wilkerson category of he may get one more abbreviated opportunity in the big leagues just to make sure that he doesn't, there's no stone unturned, there's no untapped talent there. But other than that, I think the outlook is pretty bleak for him long-term. I say 20 games. Yeah, assuming he wants to stick around and you right. know is healthy enough to stick around. That's the other important thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing him again because I think there could be some untapped potential, but I think that he is on the outside looking in. Great guy, too. Hope he does well. Yeah, of course. All right. This is a long-term question for you, Brendan. I've seen some questions in our YouTube chat. If you're not watching on YouTube every week, you should be on, or on Facebook. Yeah, Paul Ridgely is watching in class. So what's your excuse? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't. Not commending, not well, recommending, not, not that. recommending it. Yeah, I, don't, I wonder what class it is. I, I just appreciate the dedication. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, also, give us a like on YouTube if you're watching. That helps the formula, Brendan. Like, like this video right now. <laughs> um, 
This is a long-term question. I've seen some questions about Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westbrook. Will they debut in 2022? This is not that question. It's a slightly different question. Is Jordan Westbrook a shortstop long-term? I look at the Orioles' top 30 prospect list. I don't see too many true shortstops. I see Kobe Mayo, who's a third baseman. I see Taron Vavra, who's a second baseman. I see Gunnar Henderson, who most scouts, who has played shortstop, but most scouts tend to think is going to be a third baseman That's long-term. a third baseman. Gunnar Henderson split time with him at third base in Bowie in Aberdeen before that. He's gotten a lot of games at second, but they've also stuck him at third base as well. If Jordan Westberg is not a major league shortstop, if he's not good enough defensively to be an everyday shortstop, does that then become a long-term need for the Orioles? Yes. Yes. Jordan Westberg has to be a shortstop because Gunnar Henderson is a big boy. He's playing third. Kobe Mayo. Hey is a big boy. He's playing third. Cal was a big boy too. He, right? he was. <laughs> he was. But those, Manny was a big boy. Those guys are third basemen. Yeah. Jordan Westberg has got to be a shortstop because there are not a lot of other defensive shortstops on the top 30. Like you said, I think he's good enough to be a, a defensive shortstop too. By all accounts in the minor leagues, he has played well there defensively and he was also a good defensive shortstop at a top SEC school, which I know is not the minor leagues, but it's worth noting that he has played a quality defensive shortstop throughout multiple years in the minors and multiple years in college. So I don't know if Jordan Westberg is going to ever be an elite defensive shortstop, but I think even if he is an average defensive shortstop who is a good hitter, that's fine. It's tough for us to say from the outside because we are not scouts, first and foremost, as much as we pretend to be at times. And defensive metrics in the minor leagues are much harder to come by than they are defensive metrics at the major leagues. So we're just going off of what scouts say and what the Orioles do with him as well. And I think they want to give Gunnar Henderson that shot at short, which is why they've tried Westberg at third. But I do think there is an opportunity for him to be a long-term shortstop. And I think that as these guys get closer to the big leagues, We'll see even more what the Orioles think of these guys because they're going to have to make a decision, most likely, one way or the other, and say, Westberg, you're our shortstop. Gunner, you're our third baseman. Or vice versa. Vice versa is less likely than the first option, but we'll see. I do think that does become an issue because we've seen the Orioles pass if he cannot play shortstop long-term because we've seen the Orioles pass on some top shortstops in the draft as of late. They passed on Austin Martin. Who, Jordan Lawler. Uh, Austin Martin has since kind of shifted positions. Uh, Jordan Lawler they passed on. Uh, who is the other shortstop? The Khalil Watson. Khalil Watson, the high school shortstop in, the, in this past draft. And they went with a center fielder in Colton Kowser. Second round, they went with Connor Norby, who is a second baseman. So it could be an issue long-term. But again, these are... If, if Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson are big leaguers and they're good enough offensively to be big leaguers, these are questions that the Orioles will figure out. Right. Maybe they sign somebody in a few years. They just need to make sure these guys can play, period. Yeah. And I think there's a chance that Westberg debuts this year to answer some of the YouTube questions. I don't think it's a high percentage chance, but I think it's a chance. I think it's a chance. I think it's more likely that Westberg debuts this year than it is Gunnar Henderson. Absolutely. Westberg is a more polished player. He's an older player. And I think they want to give Gunnar a little bit more time to adjust. I agree. Um, All right. 
couple more questions here discussing the Orioles infield. Taryn Vavra, intriguing prospect. I know you're on the Taryn Vavra hype train. Oh, I'm, I'm all aboard. And many people jumped on that Taryn Vavra hype train to start 2021 because he was awesome to start Bowie. Of course, they got him in a trade in 2020, and we didn't get to see him that season because of the uh, you know no minor league season. And he was great in Bowie. Then he got hurt, and his stats dipped a little bit when he came back. Could Taron Vavra hop over some of the guys ahead of him on this list? He's a little bit older than Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson. I believe Taron Vavra turns he turns 25 in May. He had a, still had a pretty good offensive season at the plate, 855 OPS, but only 48 games, and all of them came in Bowie. Could he hop a Gunnar Henderson, a Jordan Westberg, just because those guys didn't start the 2021 season in AA? Taron Vavra did. Is he ahead of those guys? Will he get called up before those guys do? Yes. You think so? Especially when you look at the depth chart at second base. I think Taron Vavra is going to be a second baseman. He can play shortstop, which will help him probably move up to the majors a little bit quicker. But I think realistically, long-term, if you are looking at Taron Vavra as an everyday player somewhere, I think it's at second base. And when you look at the depth chart at second base, Taron Vavra is a more highly touted prospect than Jemai Jones. I know we were excited about Jemai Jones when that trade happened, and we were excited about him when he was putting up pretty good numbers in AAA last year. But Taron Vavra is a better prospect than Jemai Jones. And when you look at the second base depth chart right now, unless Jemai Jones plays out of this world baseball and locks down that spot... Taron Vavra has an opportunity to come up to the majors and lock down second base pretty quickly if he can play up to his upside. So I think Taron Vavra, because of the opportunity at the major league level, if he has any kind of the start that he had last year, this year, especially if it's a, he could start the year at AAA. Yeah. So if he starts the year at AAA Norfolk, has the kind of start that he had last year, he could move up, I think, relatively quickly and even lock down a spot at the major league level. It is interesting to see if the Orioles will give him one more chance in Bowie before they move him up, or if they'll just rip off the Band-Aid and start him in Norfolk to start 2022. But I agree with you. He is ahead of them age-wise. He is ahead of them development-wise at this point. And while he may not have the ceiling that those guys have, I think there is a chance Vavra hops over one of those guys and becomes an everyday second baseman. Uh, real quick, before we get to our last question, saw a comment from... Uh, Nathan on Facebook. I do want to address some of these comments as these viewers are watching live because they deserve it. Thank you, uh, viewers. Who is, of the prospects that the Orioles have, the top prospects, who is the most expendable and could be used as a trade? Ooh. And that's an interesting one to think about because I think that's a long-term question. As each, as each draft passes, it becomes more likely that those guys never make it to Baltimore because they're used in a trade. So my point being, I think it's much more likely Adley Rutschman because of, you know, when he was drafted was going to be an Oriole than it is Colton Kowser. I still think Colton Kowser is probably going to come up as an Oriole, but you never know. If the Orioles are great in 2023 and Colton Kowser is not at the big league level, what if they use him as a trade piece? So the Orioles, unless there is a lottery imposed on the 2022 draft, will have the number one pick. It's less likely that that guy debuts with the Orioles it's a possibility, somewhat a possibility, I'm not, I don't know how high a chance it is, that he is not going to make his debut with the Orioles because he could be part, part of a trade piece because maybe in two years, the Orioles are good enough that they need to deal away Elijah Green or whoever gets taken with that number one overall pick. Ooh, this question's tough because it 
specified the top prospects. Yeah. So any one of these names is going to be spicy. It's it's much more likely that they deal somebody like one of their recent international signings who right. is 17, 18 years old and a ways away from the big leagues. Who? I think almost everybody in their top 30, if they're good enough, will debut with the Orioles. I agree. Because the Orioles are just not good enough yet to be overlooking any prospects for the sake of short-term deals, short-term trades. Does that make sense? I, I don't know if there's a top prospect of the ones that are currently on the roster that could be expendable. I guess the name I would throw out is Gunnar Henderson. If there were one that could be traded, it that is if Heston Kerstad comes up as a fourth outfielder and used primarily as a DH behind Colton Kowser and Kobe Mayo locks down third. That was my real quick trying to figure out who yeah. could possibly be the odd man out thinking. I That being said, I don't think any of the top prospects that are currently in the top 10 get traded. Yeah. I think it would be a future guy. I, I, I don't know. Tough question. I, I, I think it's more likely because Mayo is behind Henderson that they see that they trade. I think, Mayo one, of, I think that, one of those two. But again, they have to get there first. They have to make sure these guys can play. I think the Orioles want to see Adley, Grace. They definitely won't trade a pitching prospect. I'll say that. Yes. They need, I think they want to see every single guy in their top 30 debut in Baltimore. I think they want to see every single guy there debut in Baltimore. Yes. I don't think they're looking to trade any one of these guys. That's my point. My, my other guess would be Kyle Stowers. They're not good enough yet to be. But they're, they're not going to trade him. Even <laughs> thinking about trading prospects. Fun question. Very hard question. Fun question as well. Um, somebody asking, Chris asking what our starting, what our five starters will be in 2022. Go back. One of our recent podcasts, we talked about that. We oh, gave ooh. a different starting five. I think I said John Means. Oh, gosh. John Means, Bruce Zimmerman, Matt Harvey, because I have him re-signing in Baltimore. Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, I think was my You forgot up. Jordan Lyles. Jordan Lyles. Totally forgot. I think I said John Means, Jordan Lyles, mystery free agent, Keegan Aiken, Bruce Zimmerman. Okay. Yeah. Going to be interesting. Well, anyway, go back because I, I obviously forgot my notes there. Um, <laughs> all right. Last question for the infield, Brandon. Kelvin Gutierrez. You talked about him not having a particularly high ceiling. Where, what is his ceiling? How good can this guy be? He is 27, doesn't turn 28 until August. Looks okay at third base with the Orioles this past year. But he did have an ill-fated few years with Kansas City where he just was not very good. But he was a big leaguer. So he got to the big leagues before a lot of the guys behind him. What is his role long-term in the Orioles' future? So I think this comes down to a few different options. Can he be an everyday starting third baseman on a playoff caliber team? I don't really think so. Can he be a stopgap until you get to your top third base prospects like Gunnar Henderson if he moves over and Kobe Mayo? I think that one is probably his ceiling. And is he a backup? I think that's likely. I think his ceiling is maybe Kelvin Gutierrez is able to get you to Gunnar Henderson's debut. I think that's my ceiling yeah. because I don't think Kelvin Gutierrez is your starting third baseman on a playoff team. I agree. I, I don't even know if he's a utility guy on a playoff team. Right. Um, I agree. I, I, I would love to see it. Would love to see him develop. Would love to see him be better uh, and progress. However, 
slightly older than these guys, and the Orioles clearly don't have much invested in Kelvin Gutierrez. And he's not a utility guy. He can't play really any position other than third. So, you know, how valuable is that guy going forward? Probably not very. Yeah. One question also on Facebook. Do you see that? Patrick Dorian? Yeah. Good question. Good question from David, talking about how we never seem to mention him, and here's why. The Orioles did not protect him when they had a chance to ahead of the Rule 5 draft. And while he was very productive at the plate in 2021 in Bowie, he was not picked by this front office, I don't believe. I think he was, he had such a weird case where he was drafted by the Braves, didn't sign with the Braves, but had already left school. It was a whole thing. Yeah, um, very weird. But I don't believe, I believe he was brought in by the Dan Duquette era Orioles. And the Orioles showed how much they believe in a lot of these prospects by whether they kept them or didn't keep them. We saw Robert Newstrom was not kept when a lot of people thought that he would be selected onto their 40-man. They left him exposed. We'll see if Robert Newstrom gets picked in the Rule 5 draft. We'll see if Patrick Dorian gets picked in the Rule 5 draft. I don't think he will be. I think he's intriguing. I don't think the Orioles are considering him a major piece of their plans going forward. Right. Like you said... If you aren't protected in the Rule 5 draft, that speaks to what the organization thinks of your potential and upside. And it also speaks to what teams around the majors think of your potential and upside. Because if the Orioles are not protecting him, they obviously hope to keep him. And Mike Elias and his scouts must have a decent read around the league and think that Patrick Dorian is not going to be selected in the Rule 5 draft. So we don't bring him up too much because there are a bunch of top 15 infield prospects and while Patrick Dorian does not fall under that top 15 he's not as much in the discussion but if Patrick Dorian continues to hit really well maybe he moves up to AAA Norfolk and maybe the Orioles just need a bat so Patrick Dorian probably falls under the category of if he surprises the heck out of you maybe he works his way into your plans but if not you're not really having any high expectations there. He did get called up to Norfolk at the very end of the year. I think part of that is the fact that the Norfolk season went longer than the Bowie season because AAA was a longer season than AA. So they were just getting his feet wet, only played four games there after he hit 22 homers in Bowie in 112 games. However, if you're going to be a middle infielder, second baseman, a shortstop, a third baseman, 143 strikeouts, and 116 games is a little high. It's he's a little high. Also not very good defensively. He's not excellent defensively. And yeah. that and that's what scouts have said in terms of that's why he's not in the top 30. Right. It's a similar case as Zach Watson. Had a great season. Was great for Bowie. Could be a big leaguer at some point. He's an outfielder, not an infielder. But he's not in the top 30, and we don't talk about him as much. Or Johnny Reiser, because there are other guys ahead of him that right. need to be talked about before that. However... They are good names to learn now because you never know. A lot of these guys could come up at some point during the season and give you a memorable moment. However, we just have the top prospects to discuss before we get to those guys. Right. If they surprise you, fantastic, but they're probably not the building blocks. Yes, and it's good to have depth, organizational depth. We saw, I think, somebody came out, one media outlet came out with their organizational prospect or their farm system rankings, and the Orioles ranked fourth. There were three teams ahead of them. Seattle was one of them. Uh, Tampa was one of them. So what are the Orioles missing? If you can pick a single nit, if you can nitpick for anything in the Orioles farm system, it, it is depth. Right. A lot of that has been hurt by the fact that they didn't start international 
scouting until recently, so they don't have young depth in terms of 17, 18-year-old kids. But also, it is good that they have guys like Patrick Dorian, Johnny Reiser, uh, Zach Watson as depth pieces that aren't going to be counted upon, but they make it easier to make trades down the line. If you if you want to trade for somebody, a team could take a, a shot on somebody who's not in your top 30, um, and it makes it a little bit easier to, you feel, you sleep a little bit better at night knowing that if one of your top prospects goes down, you still have somebody underneath him. Yeah, the depth needs to improve for the Orioles system. It's still a fantastic system. It's top five by all accounts, but we kind of just mentioned an issue there earlier talking about Jordan Westberg, where if he's not a good defensive shortstop and he isn't able to stick there in the majors, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's not really another defensive shortstop prospect there. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much for that. Pretty much exhausts our time here. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, hopping on the Mass and All Access podcast today as you commented along as we went along. Uh, at Brendan Morty is his Twitter handle. That's I am me. At Paul Mancano. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for producing. We will be back next week from the warehouse. What we will discuss... TBD. We'll see what the state of baseball is at that point and how close we are to returning. But uh, in the meantime, subscribe, like, share with all your good friends, even your enemies, and uh, come see Much Ado About Nothing at Spotlighters Theater if you're in the Baltimore area. Woo. See your boy as Count Claudio. I can't wait to hear your review next week, Brendan. Oh, I'm going to rip it apart. Oh, God. <laughs> can't wait for that. Yeah. That'd be fun. You're just going to open with... Your I'm just throwing tomatoes at the camera. <laughs> That's how bad it was. That's, yeah. Oh, boy. Can't wait for that. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.